Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. The title of our message this morning is Stephen the Servant Arrested. Stephen the Servant Arrested. You'll find this in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Acts 6, 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men and said, who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon them, him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Lord, we need your spirit to speak to us. I ask for your spirit to anoint me, to arrest souls, to bring wandering minds into focus, to to bring conviction to hearts that are often hardened, to bring to life hearts that are dead, to open ears that are, that are stopped up and can't hear, to, to open eyes that are blind. Lord, we ask you to move in our midst this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This week I called Nathan, the gentleman who led us in worship, to coordinate the worship songs for today, and he informed me, hey Al, I can't talk right now, I have jury duty. Yes, the dreaded words, jury duty. How many of you have had jury duty? Just raise your hand, let me see, all right. If you're like me, when you get the notice in the mail, it's not exactly a time to rejoice. Most of us hope that we can get out of it, and if we go, we pray that we're not chosen for the trial. But a trial by a jury of our peers is one of the distinguishing marks of our republic. Our founding fathers felt strongly that jury trials were the best defense against government. Well, for the next three Sundays, we are going to be getting very involved in studying a very important trial. And I'm talking about the trial of Stephen. It begins here in Acts 6-8, and it will end in Acts seven sixty. This week, we will look at Stephen's arrest and the charges laid out against him. Next week, I'll have the opportunity to take a really close look at Stephen's defense. He was his own defense attorney, which takes up the bulk of chapter 7. And then on December 2nd, Bentley will examine the final verdict against Stephen and the immediate sentence against him and the implications that this has for the worldwide spread of the gospel. So why, Al? Why are we studying the trial of Stephen? Well, first of all, God put it in the Bible, and we are preaching through the Bible, and so we're going to preach through this text. But secondly, this portion of Acts is very key to the book. We are coming to a transition point in the book of Acts. If you remember, the key verse in Acts is Acts 1.8, where Jesus said to his followers, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We've been reading about that. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they've been witnesses in Jerusalem. Stephen is going to be a witness in Jerusalem. And Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, we haven't seen that yet. And so here in Acts 6 and 7 is the transition where now this trial 
and Stephen are going to form foundations for the worldwide mission to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. God is using this trial and the results of this trial to send the first church out from Jerusalem, where they were very comfortable. They were, after all, Jews. Jerusalem was the center. But God had a greater purpose, a greater worldwide mission. And so that's why we're studying Stephen. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Who is Stephen? Who was Stephen? And why was he on trial? This, these two questions would be the driving questions this morning for our text. Who was Stephen? And why was he on trial? Well, let's take a look at Stephen. Who was Stephen? If you look at verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen? Stephen was a servant. We see here in chapter 6, verse 8, that he was full of grace and power. Actually, if you go back to chapter 6, verse 3, you see that Stephen was one of the seven servants selected to deal with a problem, a logistical problem, in the first church. And in chapter 6, verse 3, it says that these men, Stephen included among them, were men of good repute. They were full of the Spirit and of wisdom. We we know from Scripture that Stephen was a Hellenist Jew. What does that mean? That means that Stephen spoke primarily Greek versus a Hebraic Jew would have been a Jew who spoke Aramaic primarily. Stephen would have been one of those Jews that either he or his parents had left Jerusalem, had left Israel, had lived in what is called the Diaspora, in cities all over the Roman Empire, in northern Africa, in Turkey, in in Greece, in in Italy, in Rome. They were Jews, but they spoke primarily Greek because that's what the Roman Empire spoke. So they were called Hellenist Jews. So that's who Stephen is. He's a servant. He's full of the spirit and wisdom. He's full of grace and power, and he's doing great wonders and signs among the people. This is very important for us because Stephen is the first non-apostle who is doing signs and wonders. Up until this point, it's only been the apostles who have done signs and wonders. But now we find Stephen, a non-apostle, simply a servant doing signs and wonders. And he's full of grace and power. The Greek term here is pleres karitas kai dunameas. Dunameas, you hear the word dynamite. Caritas, charisma. We get the word charisma from that. He was gifted with grace. He was filled with power, dynamite power, for the ministry that God had given him. He was filled with this grace and power to do what God had called him to do. He's a pivotal figure for us. Why? Because he's one of us. We... We are all Stephen. We're servants. And God wants to fill us with the Spirit for the ministry that he's called us to do. It's interesting. When you look at Stephen and you read this term, he's full of grace and power, that term is very specific. God chose those words to connect Stephen with the prophets of old with the men of God in the Old Testament, men like Joseph. As a matter of fact, look at chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Acts 7, 9 and 10. When Stephen actually is preaching about Joseph, 7, 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him, look, favor and wisdom before Pharaoh. So this grace and power, this favor and wisdom connects Stephen with Joseph. And it connects him with someone else. It connects him with Moses. Look at chapter 7, verse 22. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Very important. Stephen, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, connected with these Old Testament prophets, Joseph, Moses. Moses being the prophet. No prophet greater than Moses. Moses said, there'll be one that comes after me that's greater than me. But of all the prophets, Moses is number one. And I realize he's not a prophet, prophet in that sense, but he is a prophet. He is the one coming with the word of God. No one greater than Moses. And yet Stephen is connected with Moses. You know how else Stephen is connected with Moses? Look at verse 15 of chapter 6. And gazing at him, speaking of the council gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Immediately, everybody in that council, when they saw Stephen's face glowing like the face of an angel, would have thought of someone else's face who had been glowing after they were with God, and that was Moses. Moses in Exodus 34, after coming down from Mount Sinai with the word of God, having spoken with God, coming to bring the word of God to God's people, his face shone. Exodus 34, 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And so what's happening here? God himself is verifying Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit. His face is shining like Moses' face shone. He's coming with God's word and he's speaking God's word to God's people. Here's the question. Here's the question, folks. Key question for the book of Acts. Will the Jewish elders listen to God's word spoken by Stephen, God's prophet? And the answer to that question will be pivotal for the for the spread of the gospel throughout the Gentile world. Listen carefully the next three weeks to the answer to that question. But you know what? I think there's a, a greater question here this morning for you and me. Will you accept Stephen's message? Will you accept Stephen's message that Jesus is now the center of your life? Because that's the message that Stephen brought to the Jewish elders. The temple is no longer the center of your life. The law of Moses is no longer the center of your life. Both of those have been fulfilled and completed in Jesus. He's now the center of your life. And we're going to look at this trial, and we're going to dissect this trial. We're going to see the emotion of this trial. Boy, there was emotion here. And we're going to hear the verdict of the Jewish elders, and it's going to be the verdict of the Jewish people on whether they will hear God's man, his face shining, having been with God. Will they listen to him, and will they center their lives now on Jesus or on their traditions? And friends, God is speaking that to you right now. Because though my face might not be shining like Stephen's, God's word is shining. And Jesus is coming to displace whatever is the center of your life. It was an earth-shattering message Stephen brought. It's the reason he's, he's going to be brought to trial. But he was God's man with God's word. Would God's people, the Jews, listen? Will you listen? See, that... That's a little subplot here in these next three weeks. Will you listen? Will you listen? See, Palm Vista Community Church will only spread the gospel. We'll only see conversions, disciples, when members live with Christ at the center of their lives. This passage, this passage of this trial, it's crucial for the advance of the worldwide mission to preach the gospel to everyone, to the ends of the earth. God said he was going to do it. God said in the Old Testament, Israel would be his people to display his glory to the nations. God said, I'm going to bless the nations through Abraham. And we're at a crucial juncture. Jesus has come. The gospel has been primarily for the Jew. It's been in Jerusalem. And now, will the gospel, will it progress? Will this mission go forth with power? It's going gonna, it's gonna to hinge on the verdict. And I will tell you today, whether this gospel goes forth in our community, it's going to hinge on whether we 
Listen to Stephen. Whether we live as if Christ were at the center of our hearts and lives, displacing whatever else is in the center, trusting him alone, being filled with the Spirit as he was, filled with the same grace and power that he had so that we would be unstoppable. This gospel would progress in an unstoppable fashion. Do you remember Dr. Krabendam's message from last week? Oh, yes, you do. (laughs) I loved his preaching. I loved his accent. But he preached to us from Acts 6, 1 to 7. Do you remember the title of his message? The title of his message was The Structure, The Emerging Structure of the Threefold Revival Ministry of a Revival Church. God wants us to be that church. I want to be that church. That's only going to happen as you and I are filled with the Spirit, each one of us, for the mission, for the ministry, for the unstoppable ministry that he's given us, whether it's in the children's ministry this morning right now teaching them, whether it's the guys in the hall on the security team that are keeping us safe, whether it's community groups that met uh, this last week or are going to meet this Wednesday, or if your group decided to do something for, different for Thanksgiving, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be as we're filled with the Spirit, with this unstoppable gospel, as we, as we show hospitality to people in our hospitality table. Or conduct the guest reception here right after the service if you're a first-time guest. Or when we have our guest luncheon at my home today. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be filled with grace and power as Stephen was for these tasks. Enzo needs to be filled with the Spirit as every single Sunday morning he leads a team of folks to set this place up. And if you notice, he leads a team of folks that breaks everything down and gets it back in its place. We need to be filled with the Spirit and grace and power for grassroots evangelism as each one of us boldly proclaims the gospel this Thursday. Bring people to the turkey bowl. This Thursday, when I have all of my family at my house, it's become a tradition now. The Pino House is where everybody gathers from far and wide. May I be filled with grace and power to share the gospel, the unstoppable proclamation of Jesus Christ, that God would awaken to us revival. That's his standard for the church. Not just through this trial in Stephen that we're going to look at these next three weeks, but in our lives. Friends, God is calling us to be men and women of the Spirit. Do do you remember the ten points of a mighty revival church? I love these when Dr. Kramendam was just... He was thundering them forth, wasn't he? It's a church of mighty, you know, and then he would give us these 10. And I I wrote them down because I have a bad memory. I'll try to publish them with my notes this next week. But here they are, a church of mighty prayer. I mean, Stephen had been praying. A church of mighty preaching. I pray that we would be a church of mighty preaching. A church of mighty conversions. Listen, not just playing musical chairs with Christians that get tired of one church and want to go to the other church, but I mean conversions. People that have no hope, no way they would walk in these doors. They are here because God changed them. And if God changes you, you will be here. A church of mighty assemblies where we meet like this morning and we sing and we pray and and, and bless his heart, Nathan is not feeling well. I'm not feeling the greatest this morning either. But we've got mighty assemblies because we have a mighty God and a mighty Holy Spirit. And this is a picture of heaven. And we look forward to it. A church of mighty holiness where we don't just sit here and keep being the same way we were. Oh, we're forgiven. Yes, we are. We are definitely forgiven. But we're not forgiven to just stay the way we are. We're forgiven to be like Jesus. And there's a difference between us and the world. A church of mighty generosity where we exhibit that generosity in our community groups. Our group had a, our Thanksgiving uh, home, uh, community group meeting Friday night at the home of, uh, of the Mestres. And, and they just opened their home up in generosity, a beautiful home. We had a great meal. Sergio did a great job of leading us. And, and it was just a, it was a beautiful, generous, wonderful night. And, 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 and display that to the community around us. A revival church is a church of mighty evangelism. Not just the apostles doing it now. It's Stephen, a servant. 
a mighty impact on society. Society changes. May we have a heart for our community. A church of mighty leadership. Oh, pray for your leaders. Pray for me. Pray for Corey. Pray for Bentley. Pray for your community group leaders. Pray for the men and the women that are, that are, that are serving us every single Sunday and on Wednesday nights. Pray. And a church of mighty combat. Or as, as Dr. Krabendam said, combat. I like that. A church of mighty combat. That's right. See, part of a revival church is combat. Spiritual combat. Look at the combat that Stephen experienced because he brought the word of God boldly. Look at verse 9. 6-9. Then, some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with him. Now, let me explain to you again. These were Jews that were Hellenists. They were Greek-speaking Jews of the diaspora. They had maybe grown up, or maybe their parents were from these different places in North Africa, Alexandria, and Cilicia, which is in modern-day Turkey. Maybe they were just back in Jerusalem for a little while. Maybe they had moved back to Jerusalem. But culturally, they were different. Their language was different. Listen, it would be like a bunch of Cubans coming here and starting a church, a bunch of Cuban exiles in Spanish. Those of you who don't speak Spanish, you're trying to relate to them. You're both Christians. Back then, they're both Jews. Now they're Christians, the ones that are converted. But one speaks Spanish and have a totally different culture, grew up in a totally different country. The other one, it's hard to communicate. Or, or, or a, bunch of, a bunch of Haitians that immigrated to this country and have a Creole, a, a church where they preach in Creole and, they taught, and they're, they're just trying to relate together. And so they're in a synagogue and because he is a Hellenist Jew, he's, this is his people, he's in Jerusalem, you know? He's hanging out in Jerusalem, but he feels more comfortable from, with people from Alexandria. He finds them. He's talking with them probably maybe in Greek. And what's he doing? What's he doing? He can't keep his mouth shut about what? Jesus. And it's a synagogue. And what is a synagogue for? A synagogue, even in Jerusalem, it's not a place for sacrifices to take place. That's in the temple. No, it's a place where people come together and they listen to teaching. Teaching about what? Teaching about the law. Teaching about how the law applies to your everyday life. So Stephen is walking into this synagogue with all his guys, and he's saying, listen, I've got this teaching, and, and actually the temple and the law, it's been fulfilled in Jesus. The center of your life is no longer that huge temple where you go and hope your sins are forgiven or the law of Moses that you hope you can obey and it makes you holy and right. It's Jesus. He forgives your sins and his righteousness is your righteousness. As you can imagine, it was not well received. Okay, you're taking 2,000 to 3,000 years of tradition and you're telling us you're reinterpreting it. Yes. Kill him! Right? I mean, I mean when, when they started arguing, I want you to think, when it says here at the end of verse 9, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. I, I want you to, that's such nice phraseology. I, I want you to think of old Cuban men in Domino's Park on Calle Ocho arguing about politics, arguing about Castro. Or imagine if like Chavez walked into that Domino's Park and then multiply by 100. These guys were mad. They were furious. So what do they do? Remember, we're talking revival churches, combat. So what do they do? Look at verse 10. They, 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 they argue with him, but they cannot withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, guys, I, I don't understand that. I mean, if I had a bunch of guys that were really smart yelling and screaming at me, by the way, do you notice that one of the cities they mention is Cilicia? Do you know who was from Cilicia? A guy named Paul. Actually, back then he was called Saul. Saul was also a student of Gamaliel, who was in a previous episode. 
Saul was really smart, had probably memorized the first five books of the Bible. I can only imagine that Saul was one of the guys, the Stephen, who maybe was seen as a Greek, uneducated. You know how like immigrant people are seen as that you're not very smart? You don't, you're not an Aram. You're not from around here, are you? And Stephen is arguing with Saul in wisdom and peace and grace and winning the argument. I could, I'm imagining that. That's sanctified imagination. Because later on, we're going to see that Saul was there when Stephen was judged summarily. And so these guys cannot oppose Stephen's wisdom. I love this quote by Schnabel. I love two things. I love the name Schnabel. It reminds me of a, like a liqueur, you know. But I also, I like this quote even better. It's a brand new um, commentary. It just came out. It's a good one. Uh, but listen to what Schnabel said. As Stephen engaged these diaspora Jews in debate, he experienced the fulfillment of Jesus' promise in Luke 21, 15, to give his disciples, quote, words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Jesus said that. Jesus says, that's what's going to happen. Trust me, guys. These were uneducated, by the way, guys, most of them at that point. Stephen also experienced the answer to the prayers of the believers in Acts 4, 29 to 30. Remember their prayer in Acts 4, 29 to 30? Be careful what you pray for. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the, same, the name of, the, of your holy servant, Jesus. God answered that prayer in Stephen. I, I think we can pray that prayer. God gave Stephen a boldness and a wisdom and a power that, that they could not withstand. And friends, Stephen, he's not, God is not an exception except for persons. He's not, he's, he can give it to us. Stephen's not an apostle. None of us are apostles. No more apostles. But we're servants, aren't we? Are you a servant? We can serve the Lord. We can be filled with the Spirit. And we can speak the word with the same wisdom and power that the world cannot withstand. Do you want that? Let's pray for that. It comes with combat. It comes with warfare. Look at verse 10. 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, uh-huh, secretly instigated, i.e., they bribed some guys. I mean, this is classic here. They secretly instigated some guys And they brought Stephen up on some very, very serious charges. Point two. So what were the charges against Stephen? What were the charges against Stephen? Well, if you look at verse 11, the charges were pretty serious. They were very, very serious. Let's take a look at them. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. All right, so, I mean, it sounds bad, right? Blasphemous words against Moses and God. But let me tell you, it was worse than that. It was the worst thing you could do. I mean, it's worse than Ozzie Guillen saying that Fidel Castro was a good guy. Much worse. it's, It's the worst thing you could say. As a matter of fact, Thompson says the following. To speak blasphemous words against Moses is to speak against the law and the customs handed down from Moses. To speak blasphemous words against God is to speak against the temple. In verse 13, he's going to call it this holy place. Blasphemy here, blasphemy here means more than a wrong use of God's name. To a diaspora Jew or to the diaspora Jews, Stephen appeared to have violated the majesty of God by casting doubt on the sacredness and eternal significance of the law and the temple for his people. When when Stephen said Jesus fulfills the law and the temple, he cast doubt in their minds on the majesty of God 
because he cast doubt on the eternal significance of the law and the temple. Sadly, they didn't understand. He wasn't dissing the law or the temple. He was giving them their proper place, but he was trying to teach them that they simply pointed to Jesus. But Stephen's preaching placed Jesus at the center of of their lives and displaced the temple and the law. And anytime you do that to anybody, anytime you displace someone's center, someone's main philosophy, whatever bogus philosophy they may have about life, the moment you challenge it, whether it's a Muslim, whether it's, it's, it's a Buddhist, whether it's, it's a, a New Age secularist, whether it's just a, it's all about me, Miami person who's just living for the pleasure. The moment you displace the center of what they build their life on, get ready for combat. You shake their foundations, they're going to try to shake your foundations. You're going to get opposition. You're going to get charges friends. And if you look at verse 12, it looks like, here's a turning point. Up until this point, the people had kind of loved the church. Remember we read earlier, the people held them with great respect. They didn't join them, only the ones that were truly converted, but they held them in great respect. Verse 12 is a turning point. It looks like in verse 12, what happens here is that that the Jews who trumped up the charges on Stephen, that he was blaspheming against Moses and God, were able to get those trumped-up charges to gain some currency. Kind of like today when someone puts something out on the Internet that's maybe not true, but then all the news agencies pick it up, and suddenly it becomes true, and they turn public opinion. Not that that ever happens, you know, just theoretically. And so it looks like they ha- that happened. Now, let me just tell you real quickly, and God wanted it to happen. You got that one? Okay. So it looks like they term public opinion, because look at uh, verse, chap- verse 12a. And they stirred up the people. First time you see this, the people. And the elders. Now, we knew they've been stirred up for a while. And the scribes. So they stir all these people up. And, you know, because they hear this charge, blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against God. And so I could just imagine Stephen is here teaching at the synagogue of the freedmen. You know, he's probably like advertising in the Jerusalem Gazette. You know, he's given a series of lectures. He is debating all these guys. Everything is nice and fun. And then all of a sudden, man, they've had it. And I could just imagine he's, he's preaching. And I could just see him. They just bust the doors down, maybe from behind him. He doesn't even see him coming. And I mean, the, the, the words there, he, they seized him. I mean, it was, they were mad. It was violent. A tide had turned. Everybody now is going to be against God's people, the believers in Christ. And they seize him. Do you remember me telling you about a phone call I had last week with a friend of mine who is planting a church in North Africa? Well, we ended up talking last week on Wednesday. And um, we spoke at length about our mission to proclaim Christ in, in North Africa and to plant churches there. And in the midst of our conversation, it was about an hour-long conversation, he made a humble and simple statement. By the way, he's about my age. I think he's a year or two older than I am. He made a humble and a simple statement. And this is the statement. He said, Al, it used to be the question was, well, I wonder, I wonder you know, if the radical uh, Islamists will, will kill a Christian missionary. And he says, that's no longer the question in this area that we're working in. The question is, I wonder when they will kill a Christian missionary. And he just said this, I fully anticipate the death of some of my team, which includes his children and grandchildren. And it could be, Al, that this is what God uses to open up the Muslim world of North Africa. What, what, do you, what do you say to that? I, I'm sitting in my Lexus, you know, with the engine running because it's a little warm. I got my AC on, drinking my Starbucks on my headset, talking to him. I, I was just stunned into silence. Pray for him. If you want more details, see me privately. Pray for his team. 
They're serious. But here's the deal. The same Holy Spirit that fills him and his team and that filled Stephen 2,000 years ago fills us. It's the same gospel. It's the same Jesus. It's the same deal. We are exiles on this world. We are just passing through this world. If they kill me, that's not the worst thing that can happen to me. Do we see it? Are we a revival church? Are we men and women of the word? Are we so intoxicated by the world that we've just gotten fuzzy? It's gotten kind of blurry. It's a little foggy. He will empower us for combat. He will equip us for the opposition that he's called us to face. He hasn't called us to face that yet. But he equips us for the opposition we face here in America, today in South Florida. Well, going back to verse 13. As they're dragging uh, Stephen to the council at the end of verse 12 there. They seize him and brought him before the council. That's the Sanhedrin. This is the same council that, that adjudicated Christ and found him guilty and crucified him. The same council that beat the apostles. But it's getting a little more intense now because Stephen's in serious trouble here. Okay, blaspheme against Moses and God. That's serious. So they drag him before the council. But on the way to the council, council they pick up a few int- fellows. Verse 13. And they set up false witnesses. So isn't that nice? On the way to the trial, so they, they trump up charges, they get him indicted by the, uh, by the attorney, um, they're the local attorney, state's attorney, they get him indicted on charges, the police come out with a warrant for his arrest, they handcuff him, boom, they, they drag him to court, and on the way to court, they bribe some more people to lie about what he actually said. And God ordained it all. You know what's fascinating to me? What's fascinating to me is that bearing false witness is expressly forbidden by the very law of Moses that these Jews were attempting to defend from Stephen's supposed blasphemous assertions. Isn't that ironical? I'm joking with ironical. I know that's not a word. Did he just say ironical? You know, they line up these false witnesses to testify against him. Hey, just a quick question for you. Um, do you know which of the Ten Commandments forbids bearing false witness? I'll, I'll, leave, it, I'll leave it quiet. Here's my point. And I know those of you in the biblical theology class with Mickey and Cal had a little quiz on the Ten Commandments recently. Great. I'm glad you did that. If Jesus came to fulfill the law, we should probably at least know the Ten Commandments, right? And understand what he came to fulfill. Because the law represents God. Now, we can never be made righteous by the law, but, oh, Jesus didn't come to abrogate or destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. So, moving on. These false witnesses, they intensify the charges. Look at verses 13 and 14. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Those are serious, serious accusations, folks. Speaking against this holy place, speaking against the temple, was to speak against God because that's where God's presence was, right? Holy of Holies, once a year, high priest, that's where he goes and meets with God. And speaking against the law was to speak against Moses. So what they're doing is they're taking the initial charges. He's blasphemed against Moses and God, and they're just, they're just buttressing them. They're lying, but they're, but they're making them stronger. And then in verse 14, when it says that, that, that they've heard him say that Jesus would destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us, what they're saying is that Jesus is going to wipe out the temple and totally change Moses. But we know that's not true. Jesus himself said that wasn't why he came. They misunderstood him when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. He was speaking of his body. And Jesus himself said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Matthew 5. So they're lying because they didn't understand. They didn't want to accept it. Though this man's face was glowing like the face of an angel, though he was already connected to Joseph and Moses, though they, everything was there, but they said no. Now next week, we're going to take up the detailed study of Stephen's defense against these charges. It's 53 verses, exciting verses. This week, I want to close our assembly together applying the truth that Jesus did not come to destroy the temple nor to change the customs that Moses delivered, but to fulfill them. Let's listen to our friend Dr. Schnabel again, shall we? Listen to what he says. This is good. The consequences for the temple and the law of believing in Jesus are not difficult to see. Actually, I think they saw the consequences. The problem, they, they just didn't believe in Jesus. But they understood the consequences. The interface between the temple and the law are the sacrifices. The focus there was on the sin and guilt offerings and on the ritual of the Day of Atonement. Believing in Jesus as the only one who saves from sins implies that the sins of Israel are no longer atoned for through animal sacrifices. That made the temple totally, totally irrelevant. And that purity and holiness are no longer established by rituals prescribed by the law, but rather on account of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. Isn't that the gospel? That's what Jesus said, go preach. Preach me as the fulfillment of the temple, as the fulfillment of the law by the power of the Spirit. Friends, in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. We have access to God that the temple could only point to. We have the law now written on our hearts, and our hearts have been made new by Christ. The law could not make your heart new. You still had that old viper heart full of evil, poison. As Dr. Krabendam described it last week, it was filthy. Excrement is how the, body, how the Bible describes it. The law can't change that. It could show it to you, but it can't change it. It's only Jesus who can cleanse us from our filthy past by his pure blood. And when only Jesus can give us a new and living way to enter God's presence by the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. Friends, if you don't know Jesus, if this is new to you, if this hasn't meant anything to you, oh, friend, listen, listen by the Spirit of God. This is the Word of God. Oh, friends, it's only in Jesus that we share in Christ's holiness so that we're being conformed daily into his image. So let's celebrate these new covenant truths by receiving communion together. Ushers, would you please begin to position yourselves to serve us? And as they position themselves, we must remember that Stephen taught that the exalted Lord Jesus replaced the temple in God's plan for Israel and the nations. And Stephen taught that Jesus clearly affirmed that he had not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And to that end, I want you to listen carefully to what Hebrews chapter 10 says. And while I'm reading this chapter, the ushers will be serving you. I'd like to ask you to please wait until all are served. Don't partake until we have all been served together, and I will lead you in that. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, ushers, please begin to serve the congregation. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Oh, friend, if you are sitting here thinking that your efforts, thinking that your law, whatever it is that you have at the center of your life to try to make you acceptable to God, to try to make you perfect, it won't work. Whatever little philosophy you have to handle life doesn't work. 
Jesus has come to displace that. He came saying, repent, for the kingdom of God has come. That means your kingdom has to bow its knee to his kingdom. For the Jews, it was the law, the law and the temple. They idolized those. They were good. The law is good. Temple is good. But they pointed to Jesus and they refused to receive Jesus. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Well, of course not. The law cannot erase the consciousness of sins. That's the problem. That's why the law has to be used lawfully, but it can't be used to erase the consciousness of sins. No, the law is intended to raise the consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins every year. He's talking here about the sacrifices in the temple. Four, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is probably what Stephen was preaching. You get now why they got so mad at him? Verse five, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have, not taken, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus said, I've come to do the will of God, and the will of God is that my body would be the sacrifice. I will be the lamb. I am the one that that Moses was pointing to. I am the one that the temple was pointing to. I am the one that the Passover lamb points to. I fulfill it all. No more need for the temple, the sacrifices. I fulfill it in my body because I've come to do the will of God, and that is die on the cross. Verse 8, when he said above, I'm going to need uh, the elements as well, guys. Can someone bring me the elements? Thanks. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these he offered according to what? According to what? The law. The law. Just put it in place right there. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Do you see that? He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now listen carefully. If you are not one who has bowed your life and your heart to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, this is not for you. I pray that in hearing me, God would have convicted you and that you, unlike the Jews, wouldn't be opposed to this truth, opposed to God, but you would actually submit yourself to God and receive God. But if you are one who has bowed your knee to Christ, if you believe that it is the body of Christ offered up on the cross for you, the blood of Christ offered up for you according to God's will, if you believe that, I bid you now, take and eat the body of Christ. Please, at this time, take and eat. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. This is what the priests do every day in the temple, which can never take away sins. Those sacrifices can never take away sins, Israel. Your self-sacrifice, your self-righteous self-atonement can never take away your sins, friends, ever. It is only Jesus' sacrifice. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, friends, that was on the cross. He sat down at the right hand of God. He did it on that day. We know in in, in Acts 2 when he sat down and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. He received the Spirit and he gave the Spirit and, and, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the church was given on the day of Pentecost. Oh, it's certified. It's certified in the heavens. 
And he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110, he's the Messiah. He's the Davidic king. He's the ruler. He's the reign. He's the one who reigns. He's the one who we hope for, who will deliver us from all evil and Satan and all that is wrong in this world. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's us. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you right now, church. He's speaking to you right now. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, no longer longer on top of me, no longer just in my mind, but now in my heart, in my life, and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Friend, if you believe this, I bid you now take and drink the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Oh, thank you, Lord. And look what we have, guys. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not by the blood of those sacrifices, not the holy places in the temple, but the holy place in heaven where God himself is, we have confidence to enter there, friends, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us, oh church, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And friends, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You're going to be like Jesus one day. We're going to preach the gospel. It's unstoppable. Trust him. Don't let go of that confidence because God is faithful. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, friends, as you see the day of his glorious appearing, draw near. Friends, instead of a benediction this morning, I leave you with a charge. I'd like to ask you to stand to receive this charge in a solemn fashion. Please remain silent. And here's the charge that I give you from the Lord Jesus Christ. I charge you. I charge you to pray and to seek God to fill you afresh with his Holy Spirit. I charge you to be men and women of the word and of the spirit, mighty in prayer, mighty in word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I charge you to proclaim the word of Jesus faithfully this week, trusting him for the grace and power. And I personally, I want to charge you to do the following. To read, to read Stephen's defense in Acts 7, 1 to 53. And to be ready next week when I preach it, to understand what I'm saying and to delve deeply into what Peter is saying, excuse me, Stephen is saying. It's a deep defense. There's a lot of scripture. There's biblical theology. It's wonderful. Come ready, leaning forward, praying about it, talking about it with your children, and applying it in your lives. May the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.